Welcome back up, for another Jake? one. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Thank you for coming in again. Uh, new dogs, old tricks. We got the 11th episode here. It's awesome. Everything going through. This is just awesome every time. So a uh, huge thank you to all of our sponsors. And at this point, it's going to be a huge thank you to everybody, too. Hopefully, we hit our goal of 100 shirts. Uh, as we've said, we record uh, about a month before. So it's January 8th right now. February 1st, that pre-sale kind of ends, and that's where our goal is. So hopefully we hit 100. Um, if you haven't gotten a shirt, we think we're still going to keep some extras and keep selling those. Um, so just tune into the website. We're going to get some new merch out there, fun stuff there. But huge thank you to Taylor's, Jobtown, and uh, Crew First. I mean, those those three guys, crew, everybody that, that helps out there, they've been awesome. So the shirt was really cool. Um, they've done a lot of help with all that. It was kind of cool to give it back a little bit and get that shirt design out there. So, yeah, hopefully okay. we gave a gave a nice donation to the cadets. I know we said uh would have been a couple days ago we posted out that we were already at $250 from the profits of yeah. giving back. So For sure. And we got the uh, Taylor 10s created a shield for us for the yep. um, Beer Dam cadets. So I think end of the month. That's yeah, it goes it goes for January, so all of January. Yeah. So hopefully that's gonna be a huge thing for you guys have been insane help. There's been people that just done donations for cadets uh from just either here, word of mouth, their stuff. So it's been awesome. You guys everybody is just insanely helpful whenever we need it. So that that's awesome. Thank you guys so much. So you're not here to hear us blab around. So let's get to uh let's get to the main uh the main attraction, the big show. We get uh we get Chad in here. I uh, let him do a little introduction, and yeah, it's uh, great to have him on here. Chad, how's it going? Hey, brother. Did you just now bring me in? Yep, you're in now. <laughs> okay, all right. We'll see if it works. The connection wasn't working real good as I was listening to you guys, but we'll see if it works out here. Uh, yeah, you okay. were talking about Taylor, weren't you? Yep. Yeah, you were giving. You're talking about Taylor. Uh, they're helping us out. Yep. Yeah, that guy's been uh, a huge influence on the fire service. He does some solid work. Oh, he yeah. does very cool. So, yeah, very good shields. Done a lot of things for. Uh, yeah, he's done a lot of things for O'Burn Fire Ground training and for uh, Victor Gregstrap. And I appreciate I appreciate that guy's work. There's yeah. not a more genuine guy out there. Oh, he's awesome. We're having him on the podcast this year, so we're really excited to to get him. We got his his wife convinced him to to come and join on. So. <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Yeah, he did a ride along. Uh, he stopped by. He stopped in town a while back. He just, out of the goodness of his heart, he drives across the country giving giving shit away. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we just happened to catch a fire while he's with us. So uh, it, it, awesome. it was an exciting day for him. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Chad, now uh, time for, for you to introduce yourself. So tell us about yourself, uh, a little introduction. Uh, Chad Daly. I've been on the Kansas City Fire, Fire Department for over 31 years, going on 33 actually. Uh, a good 20 years of that was as as a company officer. We were we're able to promote up fast when I got on. So uh, whether it's good or bad, uh, it's good at this point in my career for passing on experiences. It was a horrible way to become a company officer. The learning curve was so big uh, to become a company officer at six or seven years on. Um, and from that point on, I was fortunate uh, as a company officer to stay on busy midtown companies, uh, which not all of us in the country get to do. Um, so I, I, I count that as a blessing. Uh, all those experiences I got to got I got to get as a company officer. Uh, most of those years was on a rescue. Um, I did about 15 years on Missouri Task Force One. 
as a safety officer and squad leader, squad officer. Uh, we brought technical rescue, several of us that were involved with that team and their influence on us. We brought tech rescue back to Kansas City and uh, therefore the rescue that I happen to be a captain on, it became tech rescue and we've been doing technical rescue for uh, rigs and apparatus that respond with technical rescue capability for um, around 13 years or so. So I got to be uh, start, uh, involved with that from, from the ground up. So that was a good experience. That increased our staffing, uh, which, in, which really changed my, my role in our department. Uh, when our, our staffing went up to um, eight assigned and we rode with six, um, the dynamics of a, a crew that size, um, it was extremely different than running with four people every day. Um, just the challenges and everything was so much more, uh, so much more rewarding also, and so much easier to do some things, but, um, it created a lot of challenges that no one prepared me for, um, that I had to get through, but it was in the end, it was a great experience. I wouldn't give back that I loved more than anything, uh, being on a rescue in Kansas city. We had a lot of freedom, um, being that we all got to develop that rescue division. Uh, we have a lot of freedom in what we do day to day and our training, our activities, and uh, and one of the three rescues that we, we have three in Kansas City, Missouri proper, and uh, we respond throughout the whole region. So, uh, you know, there's a good chance you you catch a fire, you know, every day, uh, which is always fun to go to work with an expectation, which you should go to work with that expectation no matter where you work. But um, for it to be reality is incredible, uh, incredibly rewarding and uh after doing it for that many years, that's when I got into starting to teach. Besides teaching tech rescue, I started teaching with some other companies uh, before forming our own company. And now I'm an owner of O'Burn Program Training along with a few other guys. And mostly because I, I found myself going to classes and being taught skills um, that were only, only performed uh, on training grounds. And I realized I, I, wanted, I wanted to learn things from people who had been there, done it. And it didn't take long before I realized that I had been there, done it. I had applied a lot of skills from classes to real life, and I felt like they needed to be presented in a different way. And a whole lot of the fire service is doing that now. Um, uh, you know, you usually have to go outside of your job to get it. But um, there's a lot of good people giving good classes and solid, solid training uh, and information out there nowadays. Not like when I first uh got on the fire department or became a company officer. So in a nutshell, that's it. I got promoted a couple of years ago to battalion chief. Now I'm a safety officer. Um, we hadn't had a, a 24 hour shift safety officer before. So we kind of got to write our uh, own job description on that. And, uh, and now I would say most, most of the battalion chiefs on our job want it because uh, we just pretty much go to every working fire. Uh, awesome. 350 square mile radius. So yeah, it's, that's cool. uh, it, that's it's, cool. it's a nice, yeah, no, we we don't. Uh, uh, you know, at this point in my career, it's kind of nice. I don't. You don't necessarily have a crew or anybody to manage. You don't have to deal with uh, a lot of things that you know other other battalion chiefs would have to. Um, yeah. um, we just get to focus on the fires and try to figure out how to make our fire ground assist in helping our fire ground be most effective and proficient and and safe. So, awesome. Awesome. That's, that's really cool. Really cool to hear. Um, first one we got question wise, we've already heard uh, a little bit about where you are now. How'd you get your start in the fire service? 
Uh, it, my father was a firefighter. Um, he did 32 years. Uh, he just passed a couple years ago. He's been retired. He was retired for well over 10 years, uh, 15 years. Um, but you know, my exposure came through my dad. Um, so I wanted to be a firefighter from, uh, from, from the time I was a little boy and, uh, took me about four years after getting out of high school to get on in that time. Um, I learned some valuable skills because I, I became a roughing carpenter. My dad already had me hod carrying, uh, tin and brick layers. I'd already roofed. I'd already painted. I already done all these things. So uh, I had no idea how impactful, especially becoming a roughing carpenter, uh, over those four years was going to be my dad. Uh, you would think back then having a father on the job, our size, I'd be a shoe in, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know to this day if that was on purpose or not, that it took me four years to get on and we tested every year. Um, there was a lot of people applying back then, but, uh, but I don't feel like I got much help getting on. And, uh, he, he tried to push me down the road of going to college. And he also had the opinion that, uh, you should never have a job this good until you've worked a real job. And I, I think most of us firemen know what that means. Um, you need to get, you need to go do a hands-on, dirty, uh, manual labor job so that you don't take this job for, for granted. Because, yeah, this is a manual labor job. It's the dirty job, but there's a lot of downtime. And uh, and people will take that job because of that. And, and uh, so, anyway, that was his opinion. But, anyway, I, so his influence is uh, is is – by far the biggest influence that got me uh, wanting to go into the fire service. And then after that, my sister ended up doing 25 years in the fire service on the same department. My brother's a battalion chief on the fire department right now. Um, so. That's awesome. Cool. So when yeah, you got, uh, uh, with that, with, with that, there's something I'd like to say that it kind of dawned on me in the last couple of years as a battalion chief with some challenges that I've been faced with that, when I got on the job, um, everywhere I went, you know, you're, you're Bob Daly's son, you're this guy's son. Yeah, that was his name. And, uh, and, and and then I had to listen to everyone say how he's one of the best firemen on the job. That was their opinion, not mine. I didn't work with him much. Um, but that was when I first got on the job. And you could walk through the door of a fire station now, and uh, I'd say most people would say Bob who. Mm -hmm. um, if they didn't know his name, it's probably because he had three kids on the job um yeah. or you have two and a half kids one's a step but uh regardless so with, with that mindset i realized that so many people are reluctant to do their jobs um when they promote up and they're made responsible and accountable to certain things and they're reluctant about it because they're worried about what people think about them or 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 their reputation or their name when what's most important is, is to do what you're being held accountable to and and to understand that just in my 30 years, 32 years on the job, almost nobody knows this man. When I got on, he was one of the best. If you had learned from someone, you learn from him. And I'm still on the job and almost no one knows him. So you're going to be forgot. You're just a few generations away from saying Bryce who, Brendan who. And so if that's what's holding you back, don't let it hold you back. Because no one's going to know who you are in 30 years. So, but the impact you could have could be much bigger than that. Um, as, as opposed to someone knowing what your name is in 30 years, uh, the impact of doing your job and doing what you're accountable to could have a much bigger impact. Absolutely. That's, that's great advice. Never thought about it that way. That's, that's awesome. 
Um, so going back yeah. to the start, um, it would be, what did you do as a new firefighter to earn the respect of your crew? So, you, you know, you've been going in a little bit about beforehand, but what was uh, some things that stuck out to you? So that's where um, I hear a lot of people complain. You know, I'm on a small job. I got nobody that's into the job or I got nobody to teach me. And so it's like, you know what? Uh, at this point, you've been you've been blessed and granted with the name professional firefighter. You're getting paid to be a firefighter. That's your job. So you don't need somebody to hold your hand. Um, uh, one of the first spots I went to, um, I, I didn't get any instruction. I was the only person back then. We wore a button-up shirt, badge, collar pins all day long. And uh, oftentimes during nap time, um, I was the only one. I was the only one training. I was the only one cleaning. I was the only one doing a lot of stuff. So you have to seek out ways to better yourself. And today it's so much easier than back then. I didn't have the internet back then. Um, I had a pocket full of quarters and I drove a 1978 Seagrade Quint up to the Burger King parking lot, start dropping quarters in the phone, call my dad, figure out how to lay two and a half inch up the ladder and strap it every third rung and run the ropes down the ladder so you, so I could adjust it and throw water all by myself out of this old Seagrave um, into the back parking lot of the Burger King. Uh all while dropping quarters in the phone, like, what's next, dad? What's next? So it, it is, you know, the job is what it is. It's what you make it, you know, and if that's how you got to learn. That's a hard way to learn. Um, but but that's what you got to do. You got to seek out as a young guy. You got to seek out those people. And I, I tell young guys a lot of times, you know, obviously you go in with the utmost respect for every person in that firehouse. Uh, don't burn any bridges just because you recognize one guy may not be as motivated as the next um, because ultimately we all got to work together and no matter how lazy someone may be, when the call drops, uh, you need that guy to pitch in. Maybe it's just pulling hose in the front yard, kicking kinks, but you know what? We need everybody. So to isolate yourself or to look down on someone who may not be fitting your mold of what a fireman is, um, you're crippling yourself in the future. You're crippling yourself as you go through the fire service and you want to create change and influence others. You're never going to influence those people now. Now that you call them a piece of shit, you are not going to influence that person forever, probably. So identify that as a young person, identify who might be able to help you. And it may not be the senior man. It may not be the company officer. Uh, it may be a firefighter who's got three years on, but he picked up some knowledge from this guy or this guy or this guy. And as long as you, all you, all you got to do is ask and be patient. And it's very hard if you respectfully ask people to do some some type of training or about something, um, it's 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 very hard for most people just to say no, mm -hmm. and no no matter how much a person may not want to get involved or do it, uh, they will at least tag somebody else or take you to someone else or tell you where to go, um, if you do it with respect and you don't you don't bug the shit out of them. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. Um, uh, I found the people that I knew were willing to talk to me, willing to spend time talking to me. And then I started hitting them up, you know, what can you tell me about this? What can you tell me about this? Along with that, I started immediately getting into the books and learning how to promote up to the next spot. And that's when within a few years, I found out there were, there were some training opportunities back then in the nineties outside of my department. So eventually I started getting to those training opportunities and learning how that world worked. And while it's a different world now than it was then, but, but still beneficial nonetheless, uh, maybe not, not not the caliber of what we got now, but it, it was beneficial. 
uh, for, and I had one senior guy that, that would do that, that led me, told me to get, you know, to go somewhere, go take classes, go do this, go do that. One person in, in my whole career has told me to, to leave, leave, leave the city and go get training. One person. I tell everybody it's, uh, I tell young guys, you need to put it in your bu budget. That fire department training network. I haven't been there. I know a lot of people have, I know some people that teach there. I tell young guys out of academy, the first thing you do, work a couple overtime shifts, put it in the bank, explain to your wife or your spouse or nobody if you if you're not accountable, nobody. But explain to, but this is to get to the fire department training network. Those five days up there, that boot camp up there will will probably surpass the three, the four, the six months of fire academy that you had to do in order to mm -hmm. get your certificates to hang on the wall. Um, but that and then start asking around where to go. So yeah, I got myself outside of the department to get other influence. That's why I got on Missouri task force one. That wasn't until I had, uh, probably 10 or 11 years on the job, but that really opened my eyes to a, a network of people, uh, that were available. Um, I got, got to go, I got the opportunity to go to a writ under fire class. The very first one, I have the piece of paper in my desk drawer still with all the people that were going there. I had no idea the shoulders I was rubbing with, uh, Chief Healy, all, all these different chiefs from Chicago, New York, Milwaukee, uh, other big cities. I had no idea I was taking a class with this caliber of people back then. And uh, but anyway, that was a great opportunity that taught me a lot. I, I I almost died or had to get drug out and resuscitated a few times because of my cockiness. Um, um, uh, so uh, that influenced what I do now in training, live smoke training. Fog is great. Fake smoke is awesome. That makes for a lot of realism, but real smoke, uh, there's nothing that compares to real smoke. Um, when you're going inside structures and you mess up, you're actually going to breathe that smoke. Um, there's nothing compared to what they've done and the standard they set with that class. And I believe they're still doing that. I think some of those instructors may have ended up at F, uh, Fire Department Training Network. And I know they have a command under fire now, which I, yeah. I would imagine is using that name would be the same group of people or the same mindset. So, um, yeah. anyway. Awesome. Yeah, I had the chance to uh, go down to fire FDTN uh, two years ago with uh, one of my captains. And, yeah, that fire ground boot camp, I think, is the first one you have to do before yeah. you take any yeah. of these other classes. That was a great, great experience. I mean, you high heat um, doing the stuff with those guys from all over the place. That was the best training I think I ever went to in my life. Um, I want to get the chance yeah, to go to, that's like, right. the... the um, ladder are the truck company class and they have an engine company class now so that's my one of my goals is get back yep. down there and do some of the specialized classes i think it'd be great so yeah and nowadays that's being exposed i got to go teach a class uh um it was up around milwaukee area um ty rondo he works in milwaukee now uh brought us up to help with the class i got to teach with mike torres i brought john john young came from kansas city with us but uh, being able to mingle and teach with other people, I've learned tremendous amounts. That's where the drag strap came from. Um, uh, I was teaching uh, search with someone and they identified that uh, they wore a larger glove on one hand. And so they could put their hand inside of it. And that's when I realized the reason I drop people all the time. And, and this was acceptable. This is what everyone does. We just didn't talk about it. But the, my experience through going out and teaching with other people, um, has proven to evolve me a lot as a firefighter. So I, I think somebody can teach at any age. We have several young people to teach with O'Byrne. Um, 
I feel like uh, we we've picked out the right people, the motivated people, um, people that are out there and getting classes and getting information from the right people. Um, and and you know, especially if you're trying to create a company that doesn't have a name or a face to it, it's, it's the company. So uh, my envision for O'Burn Program Training is that um, when you say that, you wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't all it wouldn't necessarily be synonymous with oh Chad Daly. It would be oh that's a good group of guys, and that in 20 years from now or 30 years when everyone says Chad who, it's like oh yeah O'Burn Program Training. That's a good group of guys because who cares what name it is. It's right. like, like uh, I told you, someone else had called me up to teach with them. That was their class. It had nothing to do with O'Byrne. He just needed some help training. We've done the same thing. It's been reciprocal. So I don't care who's ha- whose flag is hanging, whose name is getting uh, get, getting shared about for putting on a class. Um, I just care that you have good people passing on good information to firefighters who are hungry to get it, spending their own time, their own money to be there. Uh, the last thing I want to do is let down a firefighter who has gone out of his comfort zone, put him, put himself out there financially and time-wise to learn something, and then it not be worth their while. Right. So, yeah, yeah, we've uh, we've got real lucky with our department and trainings. Um, so, like Brennan was saying with FDTN, we're sending two people to FDTN every year now, and for a department our size, that's, that's pretty good. So. Right now, fingers crossed. I was Absolutely. told I was told that I'm next year. So me and um, one of our newer guys were the last ones that put in that got denied because they sent the other two people. So hopefully next yeah. year I get I get to go down there. So that'll be a, a great time. But yeah, it's it's awesome. As, awesome. Soon as you get outside of your department, and we just got a, a smoke machine or a, not a smoke machine, a smudge pot um, for our training, our new training yep. center, so we can get some some real smoke in there. So. That's uh, tomorrow's goal, actually. Nice. Is, is we're gonna get a uh, get out there and get some get some training done. So get some reps in. So yeah, and there's no way, and that's probably what got me into teaching so much is that after running, I, I went and learned something. Uh, I learned some forceful entry stuff that we had never. We didn't use halligans. Uh, we had three piece halligans on every pumper, and that was about it. Never got brought off the rig when I first got on, and then uh, I, I took a class from some East coast guys who knew how to use the irons. Didn't even know what the irons were. Uh, we're a pick head ax kind of, kind of department. Now we're 50, 50, probably because of a lot of people's influence with forceful entry and whatnot. Uh, but, um, but that influence when you learn a skill like that, and then I got to go do it like several hundred times a day for two weeks down at Katrina. And it's like, and I realized it's like who in the fire service has got to go into, uh, the ninth ward, go into a hood, and force doors a couple hundred a day for 14 days. <laughs> it's like the only people I know are the people <laughs> that were down there during Katrina. I don't think that's ever happened before. And right. it's like, I got so proficient at it. It's like, I need to pass this on. And I want everyone I work with, and, and better yet, when I go on the fire ground, I want everyone I work with to have the same skill set and have the same knowledge and be as proficient because this stuff works. And, uh, and, uh, that's part of what made me start teaching it to my company and then start, start working with other people to teach it. You know, you want people to have that same proficiency. You want them to, to excel and succeed. That's why I enjoy going out to these different trains and bringing that knowledge back to the department. I mean, our captain's really nice. Like, Hey, you teaching, or you pick a topic to teach, you know, this shift and you, you lead it. I think that's a very good way to get these young, um, firefighters teaching and 
I believe if you can teach it, you're proficient at it. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like, like going out and getting experience and bringing it back so everyone can share on it. And- Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, not everyone can go out. Yeah, you go. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, not everyone just, has a, absolutely have to do that. Not everybody can always go out and get that training and come back and bring it, um, uh, get everyone out. So you have to rely on people to bring training back to you and, and pass it on the best you can. Yeah, yep. sure. Yeah, that's what our, our captain, like he said, does is every um, month, all of us kind of get a topic to teach on. But mostly whenever we go to a training, it's expected that within like the next couple of weeks after you get back from it, you teach, you have a shift where you teach what you learned from that training. So that's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. No, that's awesome. That's empowering people. That's putting trust in people to bring it back. Um, It, it, it builds you as a firefighter um, and puts you, you know, it builds you up as you go through your organization, whether it's senior man or driver or captain. Um, This is how, I feel like we are supposed to evolve. Um, we're not necessarily just supposed to stay firefighters our whole career, you know, although some do, and there's no shame in that, but you become a senior man still with a lot of influence. So. Absolutely. Uh, so next thing we have kind of revolving around crew. Um, what do you think brings a crew together the best? So. With, with, with that question, what brings the crew together the best? I, I would have to say the absolute best thing would be going to fires. Um, now, with that being said, I realize not every 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 department gets to do that. It's, it's impossible. You may get three or four fires a year, depending on what department we're talking about, uh, where you are. So, so that's not a good answer in that respect, but ultimately, uh, that that's it. Um, you know, uh, you read all the military guy books and whatnot, you know, are we doing it for them? Uh, no, you're doing it for the guy next to you. Ultimately, you know, you're, you, they're fighting that battle for the guy next to you. So you're getting better so that you and the guy next to you can make it through that fire now. So you both get through that door, through that search, find that victim or put that fire out and come out hopefully unscathed, but doing it there, there's, you know, uh, with, with that same group of guys getting proficient at it, getting better and better, learning every time, talking about it, uh, there's nothing better than that. But the only the next thing better is to bring that continuity within your company is to train together and spend time together. And um, when a new guy comes on a company, that's that's talks we would usually have is that there's a certain amount of sacrifice. You have to decide, you know, where you're you know, whatever your priorities are, are faith, family, fire department, you know, for me, it'd probably be that order. And for me, I've probably messed that order up multiple times throughout my career. But as we talk to a young guy, it's like, Hey, we're, we're going to invest in this. We're going to put our phones down. We're going to have coffee and talk after dinner every night, or we're going to watch a video. We're going to do this. And, you know, ultimately, hopefully you have some senior people on that company or an officer that's like, hey, we're going to invest one hour a day or whatever, two hours a day in training because you guys may train, but not every job trains. Uh, not every job, you know, invest time in the training. So uh, that's something we need strong people to step up and lead and say, hey, what can we do today? Um, but through promoting working together, whether it's cleaning up the station, um, training, uh, 
whatever it is, is you have to do it. And then, you know, a few times a year to get it. And a lot of times it's not the company officer can lead this. It, it, it's whoever that influential person that might be the funny guy or whatever in your job. Like, hey, man, you think you could throw out um, an idea of having a Christmas party or having a lake day in the middle of the summer or something? So a couple times a year you get out, you get to know each other's family um, because you need you need to have that bond. You need to know uh, the you know the guy's kids and what he's going through. You need to know that when he came in, he may have been up all night with a sick kid throwing up or whatever, or his wife's battling MS or whatever. Uh, as whether it's your company officer or a crew member, you need to you need to know that so you can have some level of empathy and understanding for that person um, as you deal with them every third day on your shift uh, instead of just, you know, making assumptions. So uh, you have to take time and invest in relationships. Um, and that's what we, I tell young guys as they get on a crew, invest, make yourself available. If someone's painting their house, if someone needs help doing something, do everything you can to, to try to do that a few times a year, several times a year. Uh, it, it, it is worth it. That's what creates a close company. That's what creates the relationships uh, to create a successful company. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, we're trying to uh, plan our Christmas party right now for our shift. So it's uh, this coming Saturday will be. We, we got the date, which was a great start. We still haven't figured out what we're doing. So <laughs> who's who, who, who's holding bail money? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm part on the credit card. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll put on the union card. That'll be that'll be that'll be good. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So, uh, next question that we have is a very popular one that can go very in depth um, and taken very different ways, and it's simply, "Why are we here?" As a firefighter, I guess. Yep. Yeah, yeah, like you said, that's that, that's a very vague question. You, you give that to other other people on your podcast also. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. It they was, take it, it was asked, right, right. Uh, different it was ways. Asked twice it was asked twice by previous right. guests. So we we have uh, like you'll have to come up with a question for our next guest, and it was asked twice right. in like a matter of three episodes. Right, right. And so we were like, it's going in. Like we're we're keeping so, it in there. So if you're asking me directly, why am I here? And I perceive that either holistically as why, why am I on this earth or why am I on this podcast? Why am I on this podcast? Um, you asked me to, and I knew you were, you were starting something new and I wanted it to be successful. I knew it was something that could impact the fire service in a good way. Um, I knew also that I could use it. I, I think people are failing at, and you're going to talk more next month about this with your guest um, at making drags. And I say failing is like, they're just horribly dirty and, and they are, I've seen it. They're failed drags. Sometimes I've been, I've been eyewitness to way more than once that it's failed drag. So I'm passionate about teaching people how to, how to get civilians out of fires more effectively and firefighters too. Um, I've been involved in a few different incidents, uh, where that became a factor and, uh, and, and it could be done better with very little training, uh, with just some knowledge from people who've been there, done that. And, uh, so I would say I'm on this podcast for that. And then what I already spoke to as for, um, the training, the training, I want good training, no matter whose name's on it, to continue to be around in 20 or 30 years. And I think we're set up, uh, as O'Byrne, we have a lot of good connections around the country with good people. 
Um, we'll send instructors wherever they want help. Most all our instructors are good, experienced guys. So I, I think uh, that would be another reason to promote O'Burn, not Chad Daly, uh, as as a as a tool for departments to use. Um, and I, as I've always said, if if we're not the right instrument for you, and you called us, we'll reach out to the right people. It may not be us showing up; it may be somebody else. Um, but we're we're not going to take on something that's not our purview that's, that's, that's not our expertise. So, um, I'd say ultimately why that would be wise on the podcast, because uh, I'm passionate about the fire service. I want to see you guys excel. I want to pass on the experiences I have, which I've struggled coming through the fire services. I feel like, so I've already passed on. I've already, we've already talked about some of that, uh, holistically, uh, why am I here? Uh, in general, um, that, that's, uh, I've had a lot of people influence my, my career in the fire service, especially in the last 10 years, because uh, I've gone back and forth with it, but um, they've helped um, bring me back. I, Cody Trestle sent me a uh, message just uh, yesterday, made me really think hard about some stuff and the example I set and who I influence. And, uh, and I appreciate that. It's very bold of him to send me what he sent me, but he did it at, he did it because he's following his faith. Same thing, Andrew Starnes. Uh, uh, he's done some random random checkups on me. I've only met him in person one time, but somehow I think our faith was conveyed. So, so uh, I think that's huge. Um, like-minded people support like-minded people, and I appreciate finding that in the fire service to help keep me centered uh, and know what my purpose is, why I'm here, and and that's why I'm here. I want to be a good example. I I uh, I was taught several years ago, and it's not wrong, but and I've talked about it before, and I've e I've even kind of preached this that this fifty thirty twenty rule that fifty percent of the fire part your fire department they're all pieces of shit. This is what someone told me, and thirty uh, percent they're okay guys, twenty percent they're out doing all the work, they're making podcasts, they're going to classes, they're doing this and that, and uh, they're not wrong. The more I the more I teach, the more I get out. They're not really wrong, but you know what? In that 50%, I told you I have a brother and sister on the job. As, and, and then if everyone, if we're if we're adopting an idealism that this is our brotherhood, they're all our brothers, I, should we really step back and say that about a brother uh, or a sister? Um, and what are we doing? How are we going to create change? Like I said earlier, are you going to really create any kind of change? It, 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 as you mature, you grow in the fire service. And now you need, now you're battalion chief, you need to buy in of all these people to get something done. But yet 15 years ago, you called these people pieces <laughs> of shit, you know, to their face pretty yeah. much. And so you're not going to have much, much, much buy-in or influence on those people. So, so it's not, you don't want to isolate yourself like that, nor are you going to have them have an impact on them in any other way, whether, whether it's, uh, are they going to ask you for questions about your faith or help with their family deal, let alone how to force a door or dance a hose line. So I think we have to have a more holistic approach. Um, early on in my career as a company officer, I was very good at tunnel visioning into what do I have control over or what can I try to have control over? And it's just this company and these few people. And in doing that, I've really closed myself off to a lot of the rest of the department. Um, I think we need to keep our eyes open and our minds open to everybody and, 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 and 
try to keep a bigger vision, no matter what your rank or how much time you have on the job of your whole job and where it's going and how what you're doing is influencing the overall job, not just the people uh, that you work with or that under or under your command um, and, and try to keep a bigger picture of that. And surrounding yourself by the right people um, is definitely a big factor in doing that. You know, making befriend everybody, but then, you know, pick the ones that are going to be close to you. Pick your mentors and and who you go to and who you rely on. Uh, that's been huge for me in the last 10, 10 or 15 years um, to feel like I'm being successful in the fire service and impactful. Yeah, that's awesome. That's extremely good advice. Good take on the question. That's that's why we keep it in here is it can go so many different ways and, and getting into so many different uh, details. So became one of our one of our favorite ones really yeah. quick. Um, this one will we'll circle yeah. back around a little bit and give you a chance to speak on this. Um, what is the first thing that you think a new firefighter should know about victim removal? Uh, the first thing a firefighter should know about victim removal, it's my opinion that it will most likely be the hardest thing you ever do in your career. I probably didn't do my first victim removal um, because we did a lot of uh, what I call fake searches. We just walk in, stumble around, call it good, unless you happen to step or trip on somebody. Um, I, I think we we and the fire service have, have gone a totally different direction with that, and we're putting a much, much more emphasis on, on them, on, on search. Um, as for what they need to know, I, I think there, there's no way to let a firefighter know, aside from aside from appropriate training uh, because the rescue randys aren't doing it uh the mannequins uh they're not doing it you know unless uh what i've tried to do unless you can buy a latex bodysuit and put on that mannequin and cover it with a mixture of water and ky uh <laughs> then you might get a little bit more realism out of it but it's going to be i've had a 70 pound dog kick my ass before it was like a slinky every time you pick it up it rolled off one way you couldn't hold on to the thing it was wet your victims are going to be wet whether they're profusely sweating and unconscious or they're dead or their skin is slopping. Um, they had one yesterday. It, it the, the victim that came out of this fire, uh, both arms are degloved. Um, you know, was there another way to do it? Maybe not. Uh, we, they ended, they ended up finding another way to do it actually. Um, but it, 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 I don't think we're setting young, young guys up through their initial training to realize how difficult it would be. Dragging firemen around with fire gear on is not the same as a victim. It's not. Most of your victims are going to be naked or near naked. They're going to be totally slippery wet for some reason, whether it's burn up or sweat or whatever. Uh, and it's going to be dead weight. And most of our victims compared to 30 years ago when my dad was doing it, you know, he, he was slim and trim. Uh, he was probably 20 pounds less than me. His victims were 30 pounds less than him. And his gear was 20 to 30 pounds less. We've added 100 pounds to what we're trying to drag out between the firefighter, the victim, because not all of us are, are in great shape. So the firefighter, the victim, and our gear, we're upwards of 100 pounds more on that victim we're asking people to drag out. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that needs to be stressed. You know, what can you tell them to do better? They need to go out and get classes. They need to they need to set up a realistic drill and try to get and, and it hurts like hell to try to, to for a live person to try to go complete act like they're completely limp and unconscious is 
is you know our, our instructors usually get hurt it's hard to do the, the the closest thing we can do without stripping down you know the pair of shorts and getting wet and and you're really getting scratched up and beaten up and you can't do that for a whole class is to get us get a set of coveralls uh and five gallons of soap and and uh and a rope rescue helmet because your face will get stepped on your head will get stepped on um that's about the closest we can come to getting a real victim so. And we had a drill like that over the summer. Uh, me and Bryce went in like um, shorts and t-shirt, no sh- no shoes or anything. We we're getting dragged to the, the steel floor of the training yeah. site. <laughs> yeah, which, <laughs> which uh, it was it was a good drill uh, yeah. for our paid on calls and even for ourselves. So we used that victim drag strap. It was kind of like the, one of the first times we kind of used it in real application. And uh, I think that one yeah. went real good. I really yeah, it's training. uh. Uh, when I was when I was first learning that there's got to be a better way to do it, I uh, I took myself, stripped down to my shorts, went up to the second floor of our fire station, filled the hallway up with chairs, uh, got in bed, and then called my guys and told them it's time for a drill. Had them completely mask up and come get me out of bed. And <laughs> uh, and then I think I put. Uh, rap on a couple of them so yeah yeah it's I, I built quite a reputation uh for being a squirrel or whatever you want to call it but and <laughs> doing that we we had just in my opinion we had just failed at a grab it, it was really dirty it was really it, it was not a, it wasn't a good grab um i didn't feel good about it even though it's acceptable um so that's why i did that following that after they got me out i started talking and that's the first time, I don't know what brought it to mind, but I asked them about a fireman carry. I didn't know. I'd never done it. And uh, so we started playing around for the next two hours, two or three hours, we probably messed around with fireman's carry. And it's like, it's got our, it's got our name in it, for God's sakes. It's like, you know, I, I feel like we should check this thing out. And uh, did you guys learn fireman's carry in your academy or anywhere ever? Uh, I don't think so. No, we we no. learned it was more like the hasty harness and more of stuff like that. We no. learned in uh, fire academy. Yeah. So, right. So so we we played around with it, and out of a crew of six people, we determined. And yes, you got to worry about airway and all that. Although seventy five percent of the people I I've drug out are not, aren't breathing, so it really doesn't matter. But if it does matter, yeah, fireman carry is not an option. You can't you can't bring them up here. But if you can, and I've done it uh, at least three or four times now, um, it it was the most effective way to get somebody out. And if you have more than one person, if you have two people, two victims, absolutely, um, you need to look at, or if you can't look at, put hands on those people and decide, you know, which one weighs more and who's taking who, and one person can one person can fireman carry and the next person can use a victim drag strap and and that's happened so the but that fireman's carry um we we trained on it we practiced on it we realized that that person was you know a buck 50 175 pounds 150 pounds every person on the company no matter, no matter how big or small male or female decided that is the number one way they would want to carry someone out it was the least amount of energy especially if you have a partner that helps helps raise that person up on your shoulder that and the air pack only helps uh, once mm-hmm. you get them centered on your centered on your uh on your shoulders and you get the weight figured out it's it's all the way out into the to the curb into the ambulance there's no need to stop and it's not even that tiring you're right you could like the drag strap you, you turn around and go back to work um later that day after we practice it we practiced it uh doing one man 
which means you have to lift that person into a chair or onto a bed. And then it was within a few months I did that in real life. A guy popped up out of bed. My partner was on the second floor. I was on the third. I shoved him back. As he started to collapse, I shoved him back in bed, rolled him off onto my shoulder, walked down the stairs. Lesson learned, never go face first down the stairs with a fireman carry. Because if you trip and fall, it's a long ways down. As opposed to turning around facing the stairs and packing up, okay. it's a short fall that way. If you go head first down and it's a split landing like I had and there's a window there, I'm fortunate I hit the wall instead of the window or we'd have been all the way outside and down. So oh, that man. same afternoon, though, the pumper captain or the pumper driver, we had a guy get up off the front porch, run back into his house for a dog and collapse in the front room. And you could see him under the smoke. And while we were masking up and charging a hand line to go in, the pumper driver who sat there and watched us practice the fireman carry for two hours, ran in, threw him up in a chair, threw him over his shoulders and walked out and threw him in the front yard and did it. So uh, it, it's a it's a skill, I think, that gets overlooked. That is an option uh, on the fire ground. Yeah, I, I remember in class, the big reason that that was never taught or they said it would never work is we have Wisconsin sized people. So we like our beer and cheese curds. So, like, yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. you said, if you can assess and if they're within your manageable weight, yeah, that's a very, very proficient skill, very easy one. But it was, uh, it was yeah. awesome being doing the the victim removal, like as ourselves. I think uh, it was really cool for me because you got to give that feedback. I mean, for us, we have so we're a combination. We have part time and full time. And so the part-time, obviously, they don't get to train as much as we do. But you could tell, especially with me, it was their first time actually hands-on a real person. Because they, they were moving me around like a dummy. Right. They were, they were, I mean, and, you know, they were stepping on me, which you're going to. But the way they were dragging me, I was there was times where I was like, you know, my head was in a corner and they would go to rip me and I have to move my head. Otherwise, I, they would broke my neck. Like, there's, it's just when you've got a, right. a stiff dummy you just take it and throw it wherever you want. And you don't realize those training scars you've developed until, you know, it'd be that Crazy. time. Yeah. Until, until you're in a fire and you're failing. And mm -hmm. I've seen it so many times. That's why we're so passionate about it. I've seen people fail. I've seen multiple companies fail um, at trying to remove a person. So, and, and I've also seen um, that the training scars always bring that person back through the door you brought them when you're two feet you're you may be two feet from a window and five feet to the ground so where's the easiest where's the easiest way for us to get the person out even if you have to clear the window mm -hmm. and not just the easiest way to get the person out but when can you get back to your job your job of finishing the search right. especially if no one else is doing it so mm -hmm. throw the person out the window and move on and, and get on with your search it, a lot of times. And, and once I adopted that mindset, I learned to take deep breaths, make good decisions in the midst of finding a victim. Cause you know, the first few times you do it, it's, 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 it's exciting as shit. You're, you're going to get excited. Um, take a few breaths, make good decisions. And once I got to do that, I, I I've used the window several times now, if I'm on the first floor and it's not far down that we drop, we drop victims out the window um, and then go back to our search. Cause there's likely to be more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I learned at FTTN under like the high heat is that you get very excited and you're like, I just want to get out of here. 
right? So I was like, that's where I kind of learned. It was like, take a minute, take a deep breath, get your mind right, then move. After kind of a couple of reps yeah, of the high heat, that, right. stuff went a lot. I kind of, I kind of created a, a place for that throughout. It, it kind of um, subconsciously create times throughout the fire for me to make sure and put myself in check. Um, usually it's after I force the door or take care of that storm door or whatever, and I'm putting my mask on, putting a mask on, you should be able to do it in 10 seconds or 10 paces, or you shouldn't even be going to a fire. That's just my opinion. Uh, it's nobody's got time. It, if you equate that how long it takes you to put a mask on and I make you hold your breath the whole time that you respond to that fire and put your breath on, you think you're doing it fast enough. It's never going to be fast enough. So 10 seconds, 10 paces, uh, in order to get in there, uh, and, and, and get masked up. And if it's second nature enough, um, that should be a time that, that you should be able to catch your breath during that time. That's two, three, four breaths that you can say, okay, cool. Uh, because this is all just muscle memory, uh, putting your mask on, pulling your hood up and stuff. Same thing. Every time I go through a doorway, um, it's like, stop, take a breath. Uh, when I find a victim, it's like, it's not like, go, 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 go. It's like, uh, stop, take a breath. Which way are we going? How are we going to carry? Which grab are we going to use? Because this sets the groundwork for the next couple minutes of success or failure. Uh, absolutely sets the groundwork for everything that happens from there on out. So I, I pick kind of benchmarks and when, when it's time for me to take a deep breath put a few seconds of thought. I, I actually think I haven't read the book. There's, there's some, some army colonel wrote a book. Uh, it's like 15 seconds to success or something, but the long and short of it was know when to take a deep breath and think before you act. Yes, we have to act with urgency and we have to act fast and people don't have time, but you got to be making the right decisions. And sometimes you just need a couple deep breaths and a few seconds and your decision will be totally different than what it was going to be. If you just, try to fluently without stopping go. Right. Right. Yeah, I think we can kind of train on that by, you know, um, live fire training, like getting like a workout, getting your heart rate up before we actually go in um, and trying to accomplish a drill. Um, just getting that heart up and kind of getting to that, like a tired stage because you get in that tired stage, then that's where that really comes in and taking that deep breath and thinking before acting. Cause I know myself included, uh, you go in on that drill and you're like, oh, I'm just tired. I just want to get the hell out of here. And you just make shitty decisions and you're just trying to rush through things, which I found doesn't really work. the past. Yeah. Years. So that deep breath. I'm with you on that. I picked up most of what you're saying, but a hundred percent, especially if you're talking about maydays and writ and stuff like that, that I think, I think you, you need to get someone to a certain point of, you know, cardiovascular output, uh, or tiredness, uh, and then try to do that skill. And even better yet, the first time I realized this type of training, I think was the IFF save your own thing that came around like Fire 15 survival, years ago yeah. or something. But yeah, that. So in one of those, if you read all, if you read the whole manual about how it's set up, and I've done this many times since then, and it's it's fantastic that you teach somebody a skill and say, hey, we're going to train on putting your mask back on. For some reason, it's off. Uh, you're going to find a mask. You're going to unscrew it up and put it on your back and breathe off of it. That's what we're learning today. Spend the next hour learning that skill. Then you take it and you put it three doors down into a big building, 
black them out and send them to get it. They go out in the middle of no man's land, grab the mask, spin around three times, get it on. They're like, I did it. Done. It's like, well, no, you're not quite done because you're not out of the building yet. And like, oh, shit, I don't know which way's out. I was so focused on this task that we just trained on and then going and doing it that I didn't keep track of that wall or which way I came from. And and now do you have the skill set to figure this one out? It's a whole nother drill now. Because yeah, you did that, but it's a whole nother drill. Anytime you could do that, I would do that. Do that. It, it was eye opening. I did that with a Mayday. As many times as you give people, that's I gave up all acronyms for Maydays. No acronyms. There's. I just want to know where you are. Where you are. That's it. If you can just get that out, I don't care who you are. I don't care what's wrong. I would love to know it. But ultimately, before your radio fails, before something else happens, before you take your last breath. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? So I send people in to do a thermal imaging camera drill with a pillowcase over the head and a camera in front of their eyes and then push them in a hole and 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 throw something on top of them and see what they do. And I, it was eye opening. It was eye opening. Even senior guys, uh, their reaction because they thought they were doing a thermal imaging camera drill. Yeah. They, they weren't <laughs> mentally prepared awesome. for that. So. I like that. Um, that's a great way to train. Yeah. 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 That, uh, the IFF, that fire round survival, that was awesome. Um, we, we got to do that. It have been two years ago. Um, I was one of the people that got to take the course. They came and did the, the train, the trainer. So we actually have a trailer now where we can go out and teach that class. Um, and Kenny, we had Kenny on the podcast, uh, last year, a captain in Boston, he is he was awesome, one of the instructors there. But um one of the big things from it was BOA. So breathe, organize, act, or or take a breath of air. And that just like you were saying, is there were so many yep. times, even times where when we were going through the final drill, um, where I was getting worked up, I was like, I I know what it what needs to be done right now, but I was flustered and took that breath. Everything went went smooth right after that. I mean, you start freaking out, you start getting flustered, getting upset with yourself. You're just gonna make more mistakes. But to actually step back, take a, bre- a breath, and act, it everything went smooth after that. And that was a great, another great skill that came from that course. It was it was a fantastic one. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, next question that we have: um, What are the top three priorities on the fire ground for limited staffing? Oh, for limited staffing, I'm not gonna. I'm probably not gonna be top three priorities. I definitely have an answer for that, um, but just know that my answer comes from never working with a seldom working with a limited staffed fire ground. So, uh, you know, as long as you know that, there's probably better people to answer this question. But what I have seen through my career, though, is is the priority being putting the fire out. Um, and I don't think that's the top priority. Priority is making the grab, is life safety um, and getting people out of the fire. So. Um, a good example of that, if I if I reflect on myself and my fire service, is that because we usually have a lot of people showing up to our fire ground is our, our truck companies. They split two and two, two people to the roof, two usually follow the hand line. Well, the next truck could be 
three to six minutes away. So depending on where the fire is, if it's a two-story house with fire on the first floor, should those two truck guys be going to the roof is my question. Um, if our priority is life is saving lives, do we need really need two people to go to the roof to wait and see if we need a hole in the roof when that's the first two of the first people to show up on the fire ground? Or do we have five minutes to wait for the next truck to show up, set the brake, walk down the street, come in and decide that we need to search this place or that place? So um, those are the kind of questions. That's one example of many is like, why are we doing what we're doing? Um, just you, know, you get into hose and nozzle stuff, too. You know, it, you have a bedroom full of fire up there. You have a charged hose line right here in the front yard. Um, would it not be beneficial to put water on that fire for a few minutes before you go through the front door, find the stairs, pull line up the stairs, get upstairs? Uh, all those questions. Would that not be better? I guarantee if I'm the one in the hallway or the adjoining bedroom, I'm hoping to God that you put water on that fire if that's the only fire you see. Um, but that's just my experience and my opinion. So, but I think we need to take that. I think we need to look at the fire ground uh, more as priorities as life safety. So where could people be? Where could people be alive? And you know what? That mindset, believe it or not, that was adopted over 30 years ago. My dad told me that. Uh, he said he, he would say, fuck basement fires. If he sees fire coming out of a basement window and he was a pumperman. He wasn't a truck or a rescue guy like me. His his expertise was pumper stuff. And he would he'd say, put water in that. Before I go down the chimney, I want you to put that thing in check. And if you look at all the studies and everything we do and just common sense, if you have a basement window full of fire, are you going to hurt anybody by putting that fire out, by putting water on that fire? Or does that make you a pussy because you put water on the fire before you went to the front door? I think not. Maybe when you fall through the floor, when you walk through the front door, maybe you don't burn up and die because you put that in check first. Maybe the person downstairs in the closet or in an adjoining room where that fire is not, maybe you bought them time so you could put hands on them, drag them out, get them out. Um, so that mindset it isn't new. Um, we just kind of got away from it, I, I feel like, in you know, depending on where you work, who you work for, uh, who's influenced your job. Um, so top priority, I, I think we got to put the people first and that should drive our tactics. And that is a very opinionated um, subject there as, as to what comes first, what comes second. And then, you know, if you're talking about a limited uh, staff fire, um, that, that's even more so. And and then and then you go to jobs who've adopted two into out um, to its core, um, to where you know you're not even allowed to go in and make a grab um, when when it's known. You know, someone's out front saying, you know, my kid is right there, and fires in the back of the house. Um, you know, do you have to address the fire first, or are you go make the grab, or are you going to vent in a search? So, um, top priority, regardless of how you get around get to it, I think has to be. Uh, saving lives um ultimately i've always said I, I don't care if the fire goes out or gets put out a lot of times it needs to happen in conjunction with making a grab depending on your staffing maybe you can't do that so then you got to make some real hard decisions are we going to try to put the fire out we're going to try to make a grab if you can't do both at one time um which fortunately i'm we're, we're seldom in that position in that situation so someone else would speak better to that but uh top priority is that um you know, is a top priority. A lot of people are into 
uh, a lot of people are talking about five round safety, uh, meaning our own safety. Well, absolutely. But um, um, I think that falls back on training. And there's like I tell everybody, I'm I feel like I was a pretty aggressive firefighter, but the aggression has a time and a place. It, it, you got to be smart about it. It's, uh, there's sometimes, you know, and that, that's why in most of my training, I try to never say never or always, because as soon as I do, there will be a situation and we can't write policies, operational guidelines that will match every situation that we're encountered. That's why Kansas City is, has been very good at when we write, do adopt operational gu- guidelines, we usually leave it up to the discretion of the company officer. It's a very, uh, it's recommended, but up to the company officer's discretion or the incident commander's discretion, because we can't predict every situation that may come um, in in on the fire ground. So we have to leave the, that window open and then decide, you know, um, we teach a lot of elevator classes and we say that you never go into an elevator, you never go into an elevator shaft or remove someone off a hot elevator. Well, some days you got to do fireman shit and some days, some days it's dangerous. If you got someone in cardiac arrest in that elevator, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I do know. I know what I would do. I may not even voice it, but it's like, are do you have time to go up to the elevator room and cycle the power and turn the power off, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so we have to be able to apply common sense. We have to know the limitations of our equipment. That's why we always tested our stuff to the extreme. That's why we know exactly, uh, I would know exactly, we put stickers on equipment. It, it'll go from this many inches to this many inches. It will lift this much. It will spread this much. It'll do this much. Uh, you have to know the limitations of what your guys will do, of what your equipment will do, and what's safe. And that way, when you have to make the decision that today's the day we do fireman shit, meaning you're going to take some risk, that is validated, that there's a life at stake and you're deciding to push the limits and uh, and to have to have chief officers and captains to support you in that. That that's the hardest part there is to let you take that step um, and, and be able to try to save that life. And that's I feel that's our calling. That's what we're supposed to do. But we got to do it with with a certain amount of smart, smart and education and training behind it. And hopefully training from people from experience. Awesome. Absolutely. I mean, that answer it. Yeah. Yeah. Circling back to kind of, you you mentioned it in brief Don, because like it, it always confused me and I end up talking to a bunch of people though. I actually dive into it, but two and two out, if you actually look at it in its full, it says that you shouldn't be doing this when you have known victims or when there's an emergency situation yet you still hear about it across the country justified as, Oh, we've got, you know, we've only got four people or we only have three people. We can't go in and save that person who's up there because two in two out says we can't. When, if you actually read it, I believe it's like one of the first sentences of the actual policy. It says that it's not to be applied when emergency situations dictate or when there's loss of imminent life or imminent threat to life and property. Like, right. So that that's, yep. that's something that's always baffled me when that gets justified. Cause that was a hot topic, especially around here. Uh, very recently, I think in my career in the last two, three years um, going through school, it was a very, very touched on topic, very discussed one and kind of, 
kind of died away a little bit. I think everybody's kind of understanding where it is, but you still you still hear it very very frequently and across the country. Yeah, it's it's uh, I've talked to a lot of guys in different departments where they've allowed policy and uneducated officers the trump common sense. Mm-hmm. It's like we we still have to apply common sense, and mm-hmm. and and or or people will die. And and you won't be able to make the grab and and we won't be meeting the expectations of what the public thinks we're going to do. This is not just a dog and pony show. There's 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 some departments where their leadership doesn't doesn't care uh, and they know the public doesn't know to whereas we just show up with some fire trucks. Uh, you're all heroes and mm-hmm. maybe and you didn't even do anything, yeah, but we're all heroes. Just all you had to do is get the fire truck to the scene, and get water out of the hose. And then other than that, you know, they've always had their fingers crossed. The public doesn't know. It's like, no, the expectations are much more. And and people have gotten caught. You know, it's, it, you know, with social media and everything out there now, it's like you will get caught. It's like you, we have to do our job and we have to be competent at it or or we hurt ourselves or uh, or the public. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that's been, there's been a lot of like EMS side too, that people are getting held accountable now. And I've always, I've seen a lot of things where people are are upset about it because it's been like police body cam that's discovered it or recordings and stuff. And it's like, we're the only branch of public safety fire and EMS that isn't scrutinized or under the microscope. Like police have been doing it for a long time now and it's worse now than ever. And they don't get any of the credit with, they've had to continue yeah. to do their job while under there. And we're supposed to just, like you said, as long as we get the fire truck there, everybody thinks we're heroes and we get all the treats come holiday times and all the thank yous for your service. And, but a lot of people not, you know, it's kind of a bold statement, but a lot of people don't deserve it when you look at how they, they go about the job and everything that they, they aren't, like you said, it's not, and it's, I shouldn't say a lot. It's not a lot of people, but there are people in the fire service that just try and scrape by and, and they don't, uh, you know, don't actually train to be for them or do any of that stuff that the public thinks and expects that we do do. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So as long as you're, uh, you're avoiding doing that and, you know, hopefully listen to the podcast and go into uh, trainings like your training across the country. That's, that's kind of the best way that you can, you can avoid that is talking to other firefighters. I'm saying for, for anybody listening to the new newer firefighters, it's just get outside your scope. Talk to talk to other people that are into the job. Yeah, train train a failure. Failure leads to growth. So mm-hmm. get outside the comfort zone and get get some work done. So, so speaking on training, then too, uh, the next one that we have for you is what is your go to training drill for your crew? Say that again. You, you've been cutting out a lot. What is uh, something for what the is- crew? Yeah, what is your go-to training drill for your crew? I lost you. Did it come through? Okay, there we go. <laughs> One more time. Uh, what is your go-to training for your crew? Okay, what is uh, go-to training for the crew? So I, uh, I, had, a rep- I had a reputation of flash drills. Um, like, oh, Chad's got a flash drill. So uh, what, what my guys meant by that is that I wasn't going to pass up an opportunity to train. Uh, realism is paramount. Uh, 
if I was going to get fired for something on my job, I always said it would be, it would be for training on acquired structures, you know, that or 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 somewhere or with someone or something I shouldn't be doing. But it boiled down to training. It boiled down to getting experience um, and getting training done. So, for one, I think the go. I would say, what is the go-to training? Uh, it, it it's very broad. It has to, it has and it encompasses very much. So, um, whether it's what we would do a lot is take a podcast like this or something, and I would set up training expectations. Actually, let me back up. Training expectations, I think, have to be set at seven o'clock that morning, and sometimes the shift before. If I'm going to ask, if I got an acquired structure, which I never had trouble with an acquired structure getting buy-in, but I had an entire mall once to ourselves. Hey guys, I got this. And guess what? We we packed a lunch, overhead doors, glass doors, commercial doors. Uh, they weren't going to miss a single one of them. We packed a lunch. We were there till till dark. We showed up in the morning. We were there, there till dark. Fortunately, I was with a group of people that wanted to do that. Um, you can't force that on everybody, and you shouldn't do that if everyone's not a buy-in. But I set that up to shift ahead of time. You know, so if someone didn't want to be a part of it, they could take off. But hey, we are going to do this. Um, we're going to be doing this training. So, and if you don't, sh you set up the mindset that you're going to do some type of training every day, you know, one or two hours of training every day is what I did in my career. And with that mindset, if it hadn't been talked about a shift before, it got talked about by the time coffee was done. And by the time the rig checks are done and coffee was done, I checked in with each of my guys to make sure someone didn't have a personal issue or something that they needed to do that day. Um, figure out what the the needs of the job are, um, you know, administrative stuff and whatnot, and then plan our day out. And it's not just the company officer saying, this is what I want to do. Uh, you need to encompass uh, the desires and thoughts and overall happiness of the entire crew. So I think that's if you're open and you set those expectations first thing in the morning. Well, OK, we all decide we want to get this done or or we're on holiday mode. Well, guess what? On holiday mode, you know what we usually did? And I got buy-in pretty good as long as the expectation was set. Then we watched New Dogs Old Tricks podcast after dinner while drinking coffee and smoking cigars or whatever. And boom, we got her done. And and then we sat around for an hour or two after the, after that and, and talked about stuff that was being discussed. So um, uh, the go-to training, it, it, it was never one specific thing. Um, it was but it is setting the expectation first thing in the morning or the shift before as to what's going to happen that day, letting other people have input and buy-in just like you guys are empowered to do the training, go get training and bring it back. That is awesome. Not every job does that. Some people think they hold the power to certain, certain classes and certain training and they don't want to release it. And whether they're the best person for it or not, uh, the best thing you can do is stand back. I'd oftentimes ask other people to teach stuff, and it was so hard for me not to insert myself, especially when we're trying to teach every tech rescue capability there is under the sun, along with firefighting, um, that I would divide up that responsibility of teaching this new guy. And I, I had to leave. I, if I stay around, I'm going to help you and I'm going to insert myself in what you're trying to do. I have to have faith that I ask you to do this and do it to a certain level of confidence. And, and I just... It's a it's a whole lot of control to stay out of things. So I would just take myself and do something else. 
and let those guys do their thing. And, and I think they appreciate it. I think it's a good way to do things. Uh, the guys got to learn, you know, is it the way, you know, Bryce or Brennan would do it or Chad would do it? Maybe not, but, you know, it's, you know, but, you know, I taught them, so I guarantee it's going to be good enough. It's going to be fine. And how are they going to get better if you never empower them to, to do this? So, and with the training, that's another thing that happens, especially on an eight man company is that you get a new guy and I, and I would have arguments with, I would have two chiefs. I would have a, a rescue chief and a battalion chief. And uh, and that rescue chief may want this new guy to be better at hall systems. It's like, well, I may need a hall system out of them sometime this year, maybe. But I got these guys that are already good at it. But what I do need from that guy is when I go to a fire later today, to be able to mask up in 10 seconds, 10 paces, to know how we're going to grab and remove a victim, to know how to do this, this, and this, and this. That's what I need right now because that's going to happen. Could the other happen? Yes, but I have backups. So therefore, what training comes first, I think is important. Um, mm -hmm. Where you put your focus based off your crew and the level of the members of your crew. When someone came to me just for a day, my senior guys, oftentimes as a company officer, they would assign that 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 one day guy they would sign him with me the captain and just because they didn't want to deal with him so <laughs> therefore in the next in the first 30 45 minutes of the shift i need to know a few things i need to know that he can mask up in 10 seconds 10 paces i need to know he knows what tools to bring and i need to know for the most part typically for me in that situation i need to know he knows how to strike my halligan uh, I'll, I'll walk him through force and a door. I can't teach him right now. I mean, we ain't got all day. So I need to know he's bringing the right tool to strike with and knows where to strike and how to strike. And uh, I need to know he knows how to get a victim out. When I position him or he positions him, which way we're going, how we're doing it, what type of grab we're doing, and that he's going to communicate with me in a fire. I need those three things figured out right now, along with your gear being put on the rig and checked out and ready to go. Um, so therefore my morning check went from 20 or 30 minutes to a, to an hour, but after that, we're ready to go. So, um, the level of training, uh, depends on what you're doing with your people too, as, 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 as for go-to training. Uh, I did stumble across a way, thermal imaging. I stumbled through that. I got given one of our first cameras on the job and I stumbled through years and years of, uh, of, of thermal imaging as it got better and better. And uh, Andy Starnes, he's a go-to guy for that stuff. He He's rock solid on that. And I've gotten a lot of advice from him. Um, I teach it. Uh, O'Byrne teaches thermal imaging class. Actually, actually, it was actually derived from Sam Hiddle out of Wichita. Uh, was the first person I heard ever teach it. And that, that was another time when I realized as I sat and listened to that class, I'm like, oh, I've had this experience and this experience and this, this experience. I've learned all this stuff in real fires. And it's like, I think I can embellish or add to or go another step with all that training. But I think that's something that needs that's overlooked in the fire service. The use of thermal, thermal imaging and the benefit it can be to us, how much safer it can make us, how much quicker we can navigate, how much quicker we can maybe make the grab if applying it correctly. Um, because it's not what it was. Thermal imaging isn't what it was five, even five years ago, let alone 20 years ago. Um, it, it advanced so much. And uh, it's a tool that I think we need to start using more. So therefore, in that training, uh, I, I start. I carry a pillowcase on the rig when I was a company officer, and I say flash training. I see a vacant church. 
homeless have busted doors down on it. Like everyone stay on the rig. I go take a look. I'm like, this is perfect. It has holes in the floor. It has glass walls. It has pictures and windows that are going to look the same. It's got, it's got stuff collapsed in the back. I'm like, this is a perfect place to do thermal imaging training. Uh, so I take the pillowcase out. There's a hole cut in the bottom, put the camera in the hole in the bottom, tape it up, put the pillowcase over their head and send them in there to do a search. Uh, that way they got no peripheral vision. Uh, that way the camera can't be out here where it's comfortable. It's got to be right up here. Like trying, I say it's like trying to read a book with your nose touching the page. <laughs> you can do it. It's not comfortable. It's not normal. But you know what? In a fire, that's where that camera is going to be. It's not going to be out here in a nice, comfortable place where you can see it. It's going to be just six inches, eight inches from your face in order for you to see it and wipe the moisture off all your lenses fast enough to get a couple couple glimpses. So uh, the pillowcase help that pillowcase drill helped do that. But so I'd say uh, go to not one not necessarily one thing. Uh, it's a multitude of things. Uh, I never pass up if you have a hood. If if you have a a rundown area, I never pass up the opportunity to force a door, or cut a door, or do anything like that. Put a hole in a roof. Never pass up that opportunity. Uh, no matter what time of day we have. They just had one yesterday, you know, a fatality accident. It, it, I would literally give my personal phone number to the cops and tell them, don't call that truck company, call me back. And sometimes they wouldn't mind, sometimes they would. But point is, when we have a, in our city, when we'd have a bad fatality accident, they would want to investigate it. So therefore, we'd go home and they call us back a few hours later. I wanted to do that extrication, even though the person had expired, because that's the real thing. That's a real car has been smashed up onto a real body and we get the opportunity to cut it out. So let's treat it like the real thing. And, uh, and what better uh, opportunity for training. So uh, I would take that opportunity every chance we get, because you get to see what it's like in real life for a car to react. It's not one that we had to smash with a backhoe or something, you know, it, it was a real wrecked car with a real person in it. So those are opportunities I'd never passed up doors to force, cars to cut, stuff like that. And really, as a company officer especially, or a leader in your department, you should be looking to create those opportunities for your guys. Because for the most part, that's what guys want to do. They want real, they just want realism. Uh, they don't, they don't, you know, after they've done the entanglement drill a couple times in their career, they don't want to do that again. I don't. I don't mind teaching it. That's funner than doing it. Uh, but, they, you know, they don't want to force the same, uh, whatever type of door you have, Mm -hmm. compared to a real door they don't want to go crawl through your tower again if they've already done it five times in five years uh, they want real stuff so uh, someone's got to go out of their way to create realistic training and that's why we always said we had flash drills because i wouldn't pass up an opportunity for something realistic absolutely awesome. with that uh that wraps up our main body of questions so now we've just got our two left so we got uh, our closing question uh which came from our last guest uh, Brian Jeffries, and then you're going to be tasked with coming up with a question for our next guest, who's going to be uh, BJ Breacher. Uh, you met him when we were down in, in Wichita. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so our first question from Brian was, how do we recruit the best and brightest firefighters of the future moving forward? Hmm. I've never been involved in recruitment, although, you know, uh, as a company officer, 
as a chief officer, you know, you always look for to try to get certain people within your company, within your battalion. But as for recruiting, that's that's such a hot topic nowadays um, with um, a lot of cities moving um, heavily towards uh, making sure we have diversity, equity and inclusion uh, to the point that they're really starting to wear a lot of people out with that with you know what's probably something good um but it's it's just getting worn down so how how do we ensure we get good people that I, I i don't know if i really have the answer for that i know that for me you know if i were doing it which i never have i haven't been a part of that process for recruiting people but when i talk to people that want to be a fireman want to be on the job i sit down and have a conversation i talk to them in real life i i think i i think honestly we need to start evaluating people uh mentally some somehow and uh I, I, the military i heard has actually done it setting a standard because they've had so many people claim ptsd um i i think it takes a certain personality to do this job whether you're on a busy job or a small job it takes a certain personality to be able to digest the things we see and do and I think no matter who you are, eventually it builds up and builds up over the years. And sooner or later, everyone probably needs a little help with it. But I, I do feel like sometimes we're recruiting people that don't quite know, don't really want to do this job because they don't, they haven't been told exactly what's going to be expected of them. I think we need to lay out better expectations. I think people need to know that they're going to be handling dead babies. One of the worst things we have to do, right? You know, you don't even want the words come out of your mouth. People need to know that. Yeah. I'm going to sit in a rocking chair for an hour and a half on the front porch with a dead baby because I didn't want to set it down. I'm waiting for the morgue to get there because I just can't bring it myself to set this thing down. Um, people need to know that, you know, are you willing to do this thing? Can you be okay if you have to do it? Um, uh, smaller towns, holy cow. It's like, you know, all the people you're running. Are you willing to go, you know, do CPR and 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 work on somebody you know that's vomited and crapped themselves and it's the worst day of their life and they may not they may may not see tomorrow and, and now everyone in the room are somebody you went to school with or something so it's uh, you're emotionally connected to them I think these kind of things the mental aspect of it needs laid out um, to our new recruits to make sure this is something they're willing to accept a challenge they're willing to take. And I, I, I don't know if there's any type of testing that can be done to say, yeah, yeah, you're this personality trait is good for that or is, is not good for that. But, uh, um, looking at jobs and the, and the problems they're having, whether it's in the, uh, our branches of service or the fire service, um, it, it's becoming a problem. People with mental, uh, I look at, you know, our suicide rates and stuff within the job. Um, and programs. I know we have multiple programs on our job for guys now. Um, and I often, within the last few weeks, you know, a couple calls for wellness checks on people. It, it happens all the time. That's what we have to do. We got to be proactive with it. We have to accept that it affects everyone different. And I don't know if in hiring, there's a better way to set people up because ultimately we want people to be happy in their job. Um, mm -hmm. We want them to love this job as much as we do. Uh, and I don't know why some people are affected differently, but they are. So um, also in recruiting, how do we recruit better people? Uh, 
That's, that's really the only one. As I know that in the past, I used to say it used to be blue collar people coming into the job and now it's not so much. Now you may get people straight from another job, you know, from high school to a warehouse job to here, from high school to college to here to where when I got on, almost everyone was, I'm an electrician, I'm a tile liar, I'm a roofer, I'm a, I'm, I'm a roughing carpenter on here. And that, that was huge. Um, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I used to think it was necessary. I don't now. I've seen several people that I've worked with, lots of good firemen who didn't do some blue collar job before they got on, got on as a firefighter. So, you know, is it beneficial? Oh, absolutely. It's great that you know what a hammer drill is and how to work it or a breaker or, or how a house is put together before you get on the job. That would be great, but it's, it's not, it's not necessary. I've worked with many great firemen who, who started the fire service without any of that knowledge. Um, but it all comes down to the right, picking the right people that have the mentality that want to learn, want to be good at it. And, uh, and you know, how that's done, I'm not hundred percent sure. You know, uh, I think it comes down more to leadership because I've seen people leave one job and go to another and excel because the structure of the system they were in required more out of them and empowered them and ha had higher standards. But they came from this system over here, which had almost no standards and that's what they met, no standard. But they went over here and now they're wearing class A uniforms, dressed up, training every day, hanging out with the fellas. And it's like, I wanted that guy when you were over here. How'd that happen? It was because the system that was set up, the account, uh, they were being held accountable. Uh, it was, it was, a, it was a status quo. We're going to wear a uniform. We're going to abide by these rules. We're going to do training once a day. We're going to do this. We're going to be good firemen. Uh, so no matter who you hire, I think you have to have systems in place to to uh, encourage people to excel at their job and to be good at their job and hold people accountable to it. Yeah, I think the uh, it'd be a lot harder for like uh, big cities like you guys to do. But for us, um, when we go through our hiring process, if they once again, the eligibility list, they sign up for a ride along with us. So then they before they get nice. the job, it, it, it's typically the next person that chief knows he's going to offer um, the next two, three, four people. But they come, they do a ride along shift and they at least get the atmosphere. Yes. You know, like, you know, probably how it works whenever you have someone that you want to actually show that you doing work. No work actually happens. So I like, it's I mean, at, at least for right. us with our with our small department and now with our training center, if we have a, a slow shift day. Um, we're usually out training all, all day, so they get to see that that side of the job. But there's been quite a few ride. Um, actually, our the one on our shift and uh, one on shift one, one of our, our good buddies, when they rode, they're some of the most blackest clouds that we've had and had some of the most craziest, <laughs> craziest days. So that that I think is a good right. way that we've gotten the gotten the feel of, of people before they get the job and how they get the feel, too, of how the department is and how the job is and if if it really is something they want to do. Yeah. I think like you said, when it comes to bigger, bigger departments, um, um, so many politics have gotten involved that, uh, I, I know for a fact that, uh, a lot of fire departments don't even have get to have a say so. Mm -hmm. they, yeah. they, uh, uh, they may not even interview their own candidates nor get mm -hmm. to pick them out. It, it gets done by, a. uh, with a lot of different departments, it gets handled by the personnel division of the entire city, uh, with, oh. with no say so from the fire department. So I, I, I personally, I think that 
uh, it, that should be fixed. It, it shouldn't yeah. be like that. But yeah. That, yeah, that's crazy. I guess I never even knew or, or thought about that aspect. That's I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. Right. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like beneficial at all for right. anybody. Wow. Right. Well, uh, with that being said, <laughs> that's going to be something to sit on. That that's crazy. Um, but now, right. hopefully, you've you've had some uh, some time to think. Uh, this has been the hardest one for any of our guests is coming up with the question themselves. So. Uh, for like I said, next next guest is uh, BJ BJ Breacher. So, uh, what question do either you wish that you asked as a new firefighter, or do you still have uh, that you'd like to ask of, of BJ for next uh, next episode? Uh, What's uh, the best way to influence the most people around you without turning them off? That that's a great one for BJ. That is a great, that is an absolute great one for BJ. Great question. Well, and I say that <laughs> I say that because I know who he is, and I know what an influence that he is, and that yeah. he's successful at it, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and probably more than me. Not everybody likes me. It seems like everybody likes him. Yeah, yeah. BJ, BJ's a great guy. I know he'll have uh, he'll have some great input on that. That's a that's a great question for him. I'm excited to have him yeah. on and and yeah. end with that one. Yeah. All right. And with that being said, uh, that ends all of the questions that we have. So, uh, like we kind of gave you a heads up on if there's anything that uh, you want to shout out. So either some trainings you got coming up, uh, some trainings you may be going to, or just anybody you want to give some credit to. Now the floor is yours. Uh, I think I already gave a shout out to a few people that were supporting us well. Um, um, <clears throat> that the training, I, I appreciate all the opportunities I've been given. Um, whether it's Breacher and Ducharm and and uh, and guys up around Milwaukee bringing us up, Ty Rondo working with him, the Brotherhood Instructors is where it all started for us having this company uh, from the East Coast. Uh, um, um, Collier and Legacy and uh, Broussard from Canada. They've been, they've helped me out from time to time. They've been huge, uh, exposing me to, um, the fire service and the training world of it. Um, Kevin Fluker, Fluger and a bunch of guys down South. Um, those guys have been a big influence on us lately. Seeing those Tom Holly, a bunch of guys we've got to work with. Um, I, I could go on and on, uh, the awesome people we have in the fire service, uh, that are doing good things. And I appreciate it that we're getting away from what I feel like we had 20 years ago that you want to be the biggest, baddest dog on the block and you're creating a name for yourself. And and now we're getting away from that. I feel like that guys are, are empowering other people to carry on this training and carry on this name and create conferences with tons of people coming in, not just, not just my buddies, um, you know, some of the best of the best, um, and into the job, I, Isaac, you know, it, he gave me a shot. I'd never sp- spoken to more than a hundred people or something. And he threw me on a stage with 600 people or whatever <laughs> it is, you know, um, it's, uh, he's great. Everyone he has, he's been doing that too. He, he looks for, you know, salty guys in his words, um, that necessarily haven't been put on the spot like that. 
and then he tells them it'll be okay, it'll be okay as, as they as they make themselves sick over figuring out how to talk in front of that many guys. But I think that's awesome what he's done there. He's pulling people out of the woodwork, people that don't necessarily do that. Um, so um, my shout out goes to all those people who are trying to make the fire service better as a whole, and 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 doing it uh, without trying to create a name just for themselves. Um, so I'm I'm glad to see that. That's what I wanted all along, and I think it's just happening more and more that we can have these conferences and these different things and have a multitude of people together teaching and training together and open-minded to stuff. Uh, it was awesome. If people haven't seen it, um, who, who was it? Um, a bunch of guys went over to another country. Did you see that? Was it a brass tax hard facts maybe where they yeah, went to another um, country and shared uh, uh, plot McCormick and a bunch of guys. Yeah. Yeah. They actually, yeah. uh, was that, was that recently? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. So and and, uh, and probably, they share. Yeah, he he was going to the yeah. uh, the World High Rise Conference in London. Um, he actually was at an Old Fashioned Fools uh, training the Friday. He was leaving on Monday, so he's coming on the podcast later this uh, this year. But yeah, that was I think that that's what you're talking about. Is he was going over to London for the World High Rise Conference, and that was that was pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool and, to hear about. So they, they they taught him they taught him what we're doing in the American Fire Service right now with hose and nozzles. And yeah. the common theme with that, and then they taught them, and they kept open minds, and they learned from one another. It's it's, it's a great training video for a fire station, and to create the right mindset uh, with young firemen, as in to keep an open mind. You know, this game, this guy may want to teach you how to force entry with a slam again, and we know it's never going to work. But you know what? Let's look at it. Let's try it, because you never know. It may have a yeah. place. The slam again may be the next thing, but probably not. <laughs> All right. Well, that's right. awesome. I really, uh, really thank you for coming on. Really thank you for taking the time. Uh, it was great to, to get to see all these uh, this last year. Hopefully we'll run into some trainings uh, this year. We can again, uh, look up again. We're going to uh, Atlanta. So we'll be at Metro Atlanta Firefighters Conference uh, this year. That's the, right on. that's a big one. We'll be at Firemanship too. I don't know if you'll make it down for that one, hopefully, or make it up. But yeah, uh, yeah it'll be a great yeah, time. Really. Yep. You starting a book where? Here, look. You said what you were was your last to... word? Yeah, I, I was done. I was done. You said you were oh, starting yeah. to look at places. Um, yeah. yeah, we're fortunate um, to catch up with us. We have a few engagements. Um, the victim drag strap is starting to present opportunity. Um, uh, more and more opportunities for us. We were heading to Florida for one. Uh, the lift, lift conference coming up uh, next month uh, yeah. in Louisiana. We're going to be there. Uh, we have we're fortunate to have the Missouri Division of Fire Safety. Um, uh, they give funding to different entities throughout our state uh, for firefighters to go to. So they've always supported our company and training. So a lot of our effort goes right here within the state of Missouri. Um, but we oftentimes get up into Illinois and and Wisconsin and and Iowa and Nebraska. So um, you know into the job uh, Oklahoma. They have some good conferences yeah. that we've been to on and off. So, yeah, yeah. We still get out and around, and and we still um, uh, answer the phone when people call for classes. So, Awesome. We, uh, I think we're up to, I think we're up to, like, four trailers now. We have a trailer for forcible entry, two forcible entry doors, like eight saws and everything that goes along, all the props that go along with it for cutting and prying and break-in. Uh, we have a trailer for man and machine 
dedicated just towards that class with thousands of dollars worth of tools and props, a trailer for through the lock because we, we were doing that so much, we separated that. And then a fourth trailer that has nothing but our large area search class slash search and extrication. Um, and uh, and we do some of that. Um, uh, also, we do a lot of large area search lately. Uh, that class we uh, came up with uh, other guys. I had a little bit to do with it years ago with the line of duty deaths from one of our battalion chiefs. Um, but anyway, we do a lot of that. So we're on the road quite a bit, uh, probably up to about 30 instructors from around the Midwest. So cool. it's a, uh, cool. it's a good time. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank so you thank again you very for much. coming on. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Yeah. You bet. Yeah, now we uh we have our podcast the same with every one of our guests. So you've seen our, our slogan, what we we say is just to simply don't be a shitbag. So I like to start it, then Sick. Brendan follows me, and then we end with our guest uh quoting our, our don't be a shitbag, and that's how we, we end it off. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you everybody for watching, all your support. Uh, whoever got a t-shirt helped our cadet program. You guys have been great. And uh, as always, don't be a shitbag. Yeah, thanks for tuning into the show. Don't be a shitbag. Peace out. Don't be a shitbag. <laughs>